You're listening to Sportsnet Today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. What is going on? Welcome to Sportsnet Today. Happy Thursday. I'm Jamie Dodd with you for the next couple hours until 11 a.m. here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. What is going on? Lots to get into today. Uh, talk a little Roger Federer, one of the greats, not just in tennis, but across sports over the last couple decades, hanging him up, he announced this morning. I want to talk a little bit about the Whitecaps later in the show as well. They got a big win, uh, but it is as as good as it is to see them get that win. It's also a little bit frustrating from my perspective. So we'll chat Whitecaps later in the show. Plus, Chris Faber from Canucks Army uh, and Vincent Verhey from Football Outsiders will join me a little bit later as well. We'll talk Canucks prospects, the Penticton Young Stars Tournament with Faber and NFL with Vince. But I do want to start with the Canucks. And, you know, we're not quite at the start of the season just yet. The, the official or unofficial start of the season, however you want to call it. Next week on Monday... It's the Jake Milford tournament. Big deal. Kind of, as I said, that unofficial kickoff of the Canucks season after the Penticton Young Stars tournament this week. We're just over a week away from training camp, though. So there's still lots to think about and lots to get into. And 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I want you involved in this conversation as well. Because the way I look at the Canucks this year, they're going to be in the playoff mix, right? Unless things go completely haywire, completely off the rails early in the season, much like they did last year, they're going to be in that mix for a playoff spot. I just think there's too much talent on this team for them to completely fall out of it once again. Again, barring something completely unforeseen happening. But they're also not a playoff lock, right? They're they're right in that mix with teams, and, and you can power rank them in the Pacific Division or the Western Conference, whoever you want. But to me, they're right in that mix of teams that is going to have an absolutely legitimate shot at the playoffs, but it's not a lock. And when you're in that position, yeah, obviously you need your top players to be your top players, right? And, and we all know who those are on the Canucks. We know who we expect to be really strong performers for the team. Obviously, JT Miller with the new contract. Elias Pettersson has to have a really good year. Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, Bo Horvat. Go down the list. We know who has to be the key players on this team. But when I, I think when you're not a true lock, you're also going to need some surprise performances, right? You're going to need that depth to step up. You're going to need players who aren't your stars to show up at some point and probably exceed expectations a little bit, give you maybe a little bit more than you were expecting. And whether it's because of an injury to a top player at some point, a slump that you need some, some secondary scoring to get out of, whatever it is, you're going to need some of those surprise performances. So I want to throw it out to the listeners. 650-650, again, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street and Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Let me know. Again, 650-650. Who do you think is going to step up and surprise people on the Canucks with their performance this year? Who is going to be that unexpected, not hero, but unexpected key performer, key contributor for the Canucks this year? Beyond the headline guys that we all know, are going to be expected to carry the load. Who's going to step up and surprise people on the Canucks this season? I, I look up and down the roster, and I see I see a lot of different candidates for that role. And not all of them are going to hit. Not all of them are going to become those surprise players. But I think there's a lot of different people 
that could step up and kind of fill this niche that I'm talking about. And the interesting thing is when you start talking about surprise, surprise performances, you know, I think the tendency is obviously always to go to either young players, right? Maybe rookies, first, second year guys. The Canucks have some players that fit that description or really cheap players. You know what I mean? Because you're, you, the, the idea is they're going to outperform their contract. And we can talk about some of those players. The Canucks have players that fit into both of those categories that I want to mention. But I think you can be a veteran. You can be making, you know, a significant chunk of change and still qualify for that star performer label or star performance label. And one of the guys I'm looking at this year is Ilya Mikheyev. And here's the thing. Yeah, he was the big UFA signing of the Canucks of the summer. So obviously there are a certain amount of expectations for him to play well, for him to show that he's earned that contract, right? This is not a completely off-the-radar player who's going to come in that nobody's talking about. When you sign that type of deal, people want to see you perform. But the thing with Ilya Mikheyev that I think is going to surprise people, it's not necessarily going to be his production, right? He, he's not a, a naturally talented goal scorer relative to the NHL level. He's not a sniper. But I think his style of game could really surprise people. And the way that his style impacts the game and impacts the rest of the Canucks' performance, I think that could really surprise people. He's going to bring an element. We all know about his speed, right? That's something that we've heard the Canucks talk about for a while now, the need to get faster. Well, Ily Ilya Mikheyev is going to do that better than just about anyone in the league. Yeah, it's mostly without the puck speed, but still, he has that element of high-end, truly elite speed that the Canucks have lacked. That's going to be a big surprise. His forechecking ability. We started to see how important the forecheck could be to the Canucks and how they want to win games when Bruce Boudreaux took over. Ilya Mikheyev is going to feed into that. Really, really good at it. A big part of his game. And of course, his penalty killing work. And the penalty kill improved a lot later in the season. But I think it still lacked the personnel to be truly, I don't even want to say elite, but consistently above average, right? Ilya Mikheyev can do that. And I think the combination of all of those, it's just such a different element that the Canucks haven't had. So even if he's only at, you know, 18 goals by the end of the year, I think there's a good chance that people look at it and say, wow, Ilya Mikheyev was a really key contributor for this team because of his defensive ability, his forecheck, his speed, the way it complemented the star players, the work he did on the penalty kill. Yeah, again, he was the big UFA signing, so you got to step up and you got to perform but I still think he has a chance to be a surprise performer for the Canucks this season, just because we haven't seen that type of player in this lineup. Not consistently. We haven't really seen the element he can bring to the rest of the Canucks. 650-650, let me know who you think your surprise performers are going to be. Glennon Richmond says, Tucker Pullman looked much better when he returned at the end of the year than at the beginning. That's an interesting one. And... We'll start talking about the defense in a bit here because if there's one area where you could really pinpoint that, oh man, they need somebody to step up and be a surprise, well, yeah, it's the blue line. And it's particularly the right side of the blue line. And, you know, this is something I know that Drance and I talked about on Canucks Hour a lot last year. When you look back at the history of Jim Rutherford built blue lines and how he likes them to play, Tucker Pullman, for all of his flaws as a player, he kind of fits into that mold. He's pretty mobile, not a great puck handler, but he skates pretty well. And if you're just looking for somebody who can, you know, chip the puck up the ice, let the, let the forwards go and do their thing and hunt for it in the neutral zone, 
Let them activate their forecheck after that. You're not as focused on controlled exits. Well, you can fit into that. Now, we also heard from Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin that they, they want to maybe get away a little bit from that type of game. They want to play with more structure. They want to exit the zone more cleanly, more consistently. Now, does Tucker Pullman fit into that? I'm not sure, but it's an interesting call from Glenn in Richmond. And, of course, Tucker, Tucker Pullman returning uh, it sounds like he's going to be healthy and good to go after the concussion late last year. That's fantastic news just personally for him. But if he does fit into that new system really well, yeah, he has the physical tools potentially to step up. And as Glenn and Richmond says, be that surprise player on the back end. A couple of, na- uh, a couple of people have texted this name, and it's one I wanted to get to as well. And it's on the blue line. We got Dan in Fort Fort St. John who says the surprise performance we need is for Dermot to be a capable top four defender. Not sure it will happen, but if it does, it'll be huge. Chef Swagger says Travis Dermot. And another one on size says Dermot on the back end will be a pleasant surprise. That was on my list as well, right? And I I agree with what Dan in Fort St. John said where I'm not sure it's going to happen. I'm not 100% sold on Travis Dermot's ability to stick in a top four role and really feel like he belongs in that role consistently over 82 games. But again, similar to Mikheyev, when Dermot came over last year, he really brought an element to the blue line that the Canucks completely lacked or almost completely lacked beyond Quinn Hughes, right? With his skating ability, the ability to make those, those kind of clever, smart plays in the defensive zone to buy himself some time and allow the Canucks to get up the ice cleanly, right? Make that first pass to the forwards so it's going the other way with control rather than constantly being under pressure, which, again, other than Quinn Hughes, is something we see pretty consistently from the Canucks blue line. He has that element. Now, I think there's questions about maybe does he try to do a little too much sometimes? Is he prone to that big mistake? That's certainly something that dogged him in his career in Toronto as well. There's a reason he never really solidified that role, that consistent role with the Leafs. That's what, that's all fair. And as Dan in Fort St. John says, look, maybe he doesn't ultimately fit as a top four player. Maybe he's a, a, a good, a really nice third pairing defender. And that's fine too. But I just look at the other options the Canucks have to potentially step up and play in the top four, especially if Quinn Hughes does move over to the right side. Well, Travis Dermott has, to me, more upside than, you know, other options like a Tucker Pullman or a Luke Shen. Now, you could argue there's a guy like Jack Rathbone who has even more upside than Travis Dermott. I think that's fair. I don't know if Jack Rathbone's going to be ready for a top four role this season with the Canucks, but yeah, more upside probably. But Travis Dermott, if everything comes together, if he hits, I think he might be the highest upside play that the Canucks have to kind of slot into that top four role. 650-650, lots of great thoughts coming in. Lots of great suggestions for who can be the Canucks surprise player who's going to step up and be that surprise contributor if it helps push the Canucks towards the playoffs. This one comes in. Connor Garland. He will have a lot more space this year and be and will be playing other teams' bottom pairs. And Dan from Van says, people are forgetting about Garland, Mr. Energy. I want to see him with the new additions. That's a really good one. And Connor Garland was fascinating because early in the season, and, and people forget, the Canucks actually got off to a decent start to the season, right? Just in that first road trip to begin the year. Connor Garland was a big part of that. He was playing well, right? He was kind of showing people, okay, this is what I can do on the ice. There was this expectation for Connor Garland to come in and, and be an instant contributor. And he did live up to that to a certain extent. Now it dropped off for a span in the middle of the season, 
and there was some frustration with Connor Garland and hey, is he is, is he uh, going to the dirty areas of the ice consistently? Is he doing the things he needs to do to be successful? But you just look at Connor Garland's career in the NHL, and all he does is produce really consistently at five on five, right? And he has to because he's certainly on the Canucks this year. He's not going to be a guy who gets big big power play time. Yeah, he'll probably figure on the second unit again, but I would still expect as much as there is going to be some extra talent on the second unit, I would still expect the first unit to dominate the time on ice for the Canucks power play. So Connor Garland is going to have to do his damage. He's going to have to do his damage at even strength. Good thing is he's shown over and over again that he's capable of doing that in the NHL. The point that the, the couple of textures made as well is, you know, where does Connor Garland slot in the lineup now? Is he playing a little further down the lineup? But because the Canucks have more depth, could he still be with some some offensively talented players in that spot? Does that maybe get him some easier matchups and allow him to produce? Garland is going to be, and again, I think it's always important when you have a guy who doesn't play the massive minutes at five on five, doesn't get the power play times. Yes, you want to look at the raw totals. Ultimately, the raw totals have to be there, but you want to look at what he's doing on kind of a, a per minute per 60 basis. And Connor Garland has always been really good at that. I think he's going to have another strong year like that, but I am fascinated to see, really, really fascinated to see what his role ends up being. You know, there's a chance that he plays on the wing with JT Miller. And if that's the case, if he's getting those sorts of minutes alongside a, a, a top producer, five on five, I think the sky's the limit to a certain extent for what Connor Garland can produce. We could really see a career type year out of him. 650, 650, tons of great submissions coming in. We're talking about who's going to be the surprise player. Who's your surprise player? Uh, who do you think could be the surprise player for the Vancouver Canucks? This year, and this is another one. We're getting, you know, we've talked about Ilya Mikheyev, and you know, he was he was a free agent signing, so there's certain expectations that come with that. Connor Garland, it's year two, so maybe there's fewer expectations, but he's making 4.9 million as well. He was a big trade acquisition. You want to see a certain level of production. This one, we're going a little further down the depth chart, or a lot further down the depth chart. And Justin from Langley and Doran from Cumberland have both texted it in. There was one I wanted to talk about too. Doran from Cumberland says. Jason Dickinson is a big factor. If he returns to his form from Dallas, then that solidifies the bottom six and gives them center depth. And Justin from Langley says, if Jason Dickinson can play like how he did over the last 10 or so games, I feel he could be a difference maker. And Jason Dickinson is fascinating because when they made that trade, and of course that was still Jim Benning, right? Before the expansion draft, Dallas felt they had to move him, trade him for trade a third round pick for him. Pretty much universal, universal praise for that move. And I was certainly part of that. Hey, okay, they need a third-line center. This was before they had really shifted JT Miller to center full-time. So you thought they need someone behind Pedersen and Horvat. Jason Dickinson, not going to give you a ton of offense. Maybe the Canucks, they might have talked that up a little bit too much, actually, that they thought there was more offensive upside. I'm not sure that was fair to Jason Dickinson. But you thought, okay, he can help on the penalty kill. And he can match up. He can play those heavy matchup minutes against other teams' top lines, which is something the Canucks desperately needed. Obviously, it did not work out at all as planned for Jason Dickinson last year. But the reasons people thought that it was a good move with some upside, I mean, those, those were real, right? I don't think that analysis of the trade that, again, I very much agreed with was completely out to lunch. There were plenty of reasons to think that Jason Dickinson could be an effective player. One tough season, look, you, you can't go into the year expecting that you're going to get a certain level of performance from Jason Dickinson. He's just not at that level. 
there's a reason that they're going to go with Miller, Horvat, Pedersen down the middle because that's your best bet to solidify the center depth. But it's also not completely out of the realm of possibility that we see some sort of bounce back from Jason Dickinson. And then you just start to look at it with Curtis Lazar in to play that fourth line center role. And people have texted Curtis Lazar's name in as well as a guy who could be that kind of surprise player coming in. All of a sudden, if you have Curtis Lazar and Jason Dickinson, and Jason Dickinson returns to form as kind of a defensive specialist forward, well, that's a really, really solid foundation for a fourth line that can go out there and not just, you know, kill time, not just eat minutes, but, you know, maybe play some big draws in the defensive zone. Match up, maybe not against the other team's best line, but against their second scoring line. Play some of those tough minutes to free your other three lines and your big three centers up a little bit for more offense. I think that's a good shout. And again, if we're just kind of talking about the odds, how likely are any of these ones to happen? Yeah, maybe Jason Dickinson not as likely. But it's that, it's that kind of post-hype season, right? People had certain expectations for him last year, didn't live up to it. Now he's being written off to a little bit, to a little bit of an extent. We'll see if he can bounce back. If he does, yeah, it could have big ramifications for the Canucks up and down the lineup. 650-650. Uh, we are talking about who could be the surprise player for the Vancouver Canucks. Tons and tons of submissions coming in. Get yours in as well. This one's come in quite a few times. Uh, and it's Brock Besser. This one says Brock Besser will be a surprise this season. Uh, with his family situation and the new contract behind him, he will be able to start fresh and build on his great rookie season. 40 goals is not as unrealistic as most think considering the bolstered top nine this season. Uh, and another one comes in. Besser is the one that I think is going to be a beast this year. That's a good one. I like that submission. And Besser's in that interesting spot, right? When I started talking about this off the top of the show, you know, I said, we all know the names that we expect to carry the bulk of the load for the Canucks, right? And it's JT Miller. It's Elias Pettersson. It's Bo Horvat. It's Quinn Hughes. It's Thatcher Demko. You know, Brock Besser would probably be next on that list, but he's fallen out of that category, I think, for a lot of fans, for a lot of observers of the team. He's not going to be in that kind of core five or six group uh, list of players that you look at and say they have to be the best players on the team. He's knocking on that door, but I don't know if everyone considers him to be a part of that list. So I think it's fair to have him on the, you know, he's a guy who could step up and surprise people category. And I agree with the textures. It was not that long ago that Brock Besser was the team's best forward over the course of a season. And yes, it was the weird North Division season. It was a shortened season. There was a ton of other stuff going on. As we all know, the vibes were completely off for the team that year, but still Brock Besser was the team's best, most complete forward in that season, right? That's not that long ago. We all remember his rookie year. We all know the level of performance that Brock Besser is capable of reaching. And, you know, as the texture alluded to, we also all know the incredibly, incredibly difficult circumstances that Brock Besser was dealing with last season. There is just absolutely no way for us to quantify or understand how that would weigh on him and how that might have affected his performance. So I think you add that up at the contract certainty, as the texture said, I think we absolutely could see 
a very impressive version of Brock Besser this year. Again, and, and this comes this this is going to be a I, I think an important talking point, important consideration with all of the wingers on the Canucks. We talked about it with Connor Garland. I'm fascinated to see where Brock Besser lands in the lineup. What does he find that consistent spot in the lineup where you know he's going to be with this center every night because they have chemistry, because they work together, and he's going to get those minutes consistently to go and put up points. I think he's going to be on the power play, and I think the power play has a chance to be exceptional this year, and if he's a part of that, he's going to get his opportunities for goals and points on the power play. But I'm really curious to see where does he land five on five, right? Is it, you know, I I actually really liked the Tanner Pearson, JT Miller, Brock Besser combination, the trio. I thought they had some excellent games and stretches of games last season together. Is that the best place for Brock Besser? But that's something alongside Elias Pettersson. We've seen them have chemistry in the past, right? Does he play with Bo Horvat? Maybe he has to do a little bit more of the defensive dirty work, but still with a, a center who can contribute offensively. I think that's going to be a fascinating question and something I'm really paying attention to with Brock Besser. What kind of opportunities and what kind of pairing does he get or trio does he get to play with uh, consistently for the Canucks this year? Again, 650-650. We're talking who's going to be the surprise player for the Vancouver Canucks this year. This is another one that's uh, that's come up a few times, and it's an interesting one because the conversation with this player is all about the contract. And, of course, it is Oliver ekman Larson. But we've had a few people, uh, and I'm just looking for the text right now, so I, I can't give you credit because I'm, I'm swamped with texts and submissions here. But just before the end of the segment, I did want to uh, talk about the OEL situation as well. Now, Oliver Ekman's... Oliver Ekman Larson is an interesting one to be in this category of kind of those surprise players who can step up and help the Canucks make the playoffs because if the expectation is for him to live up to the the deal, the annual average value on his contract, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. That that's that that ship I think has sailed. You never say never, but I don't think that can be your reasonable expectation, right? And if that's what it's going to take for him to be a pleasant surprise for you, then I don't think you should hold your breath. But I still think he can be an extremely valuable player for this team. And and it's interesting because I think he probably exceeded overall expectations last year for the Canucks. Not offensively, certainly, because he wasn't asked to do that. He wasn't put in that role. He was asked to play those tough defensive minutes alongside Tyler Myers. But from an overall value perspective, yeah, it wasn't what his contract is worth. But I think he lived up. He was every bit a bona fide, solid, top four defenseman which is basically what you need Oliver ekman Larson to be at this point. The, the place that I can see him being a legit surprise player this year is if he does get more offensive opportunities, right? Have people maybe written that part of his game off too early? And we saw it last year in spurts when Quinn Hughes was out of the lineup. All of a sudden it was, hey, OEL, we need you to be a little bit more offensive. We put up a ton of points in that stretch. If Quinn Hughes moves to the right side and all of a sudden he's playing with Oliver ekman Larson, I think that puts OEL in a position to contribute a lot more. Now, he's not going to be a 55-point guy because Quinn Hughes is the quarterback on power play one. He's the point guy on power play one. And to really rack up big numbers as a defenseman, you need that position. You need to be getting those big power play minutes. I don't think that's in the cards for OEL. But at even strength, he might have a better situation to perform offensively if he's paired with Quinn Hughes on that top pairing, right? And if they're getting some of those big offensive opportunities. 
It's Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Great interaction, great submissions coming in. We'll continue this conversation throughout the course of the show. Maybe I'll pitch it past Chris Faber as well. Who's going to be the surprise player for the Vancouver Canucks this year? I'll dive back into the text box a little later on in the show. But up next, from Canucks Army, our guy, Chris Faber, talking prospects, talking Penticton, uh, and maybe some surprise players on the Canucks as well. That's up next at Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Sportsnet Today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Sportsnet Today here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd with you until 11 a.m. today. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. If you have questions for our next guest, hit us up as well. Always a pleasure to be joined uh, by our guy from Canucks Army, Chris Faber. Faber, how's it going, man? Doing good, Jamie. Just uh, finishing up, like, double-checking I got everything. I'm, I'm leaving off to Penticton, like, right after this hit here. Let's so excited go. to get up there and... Uh, Get in the rink. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, no kidding, man. And I know you've been at the rink uh, for some of the captain skates and everything uh, out in Burnaby as well. But for actual, you know, I'm not going to call it a real game, but actual game action competitive against another team is extremely exciting. And, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, because I know you, you grind the tape on all of these guys, right? You're up at all hours of the night watching games in Europe whenever you can. But in an event like Penticton, I mean, how do you approach it? It's such a short event. It's such a unique event. What can we actually take away? How much should we weigh what we see from this tournament over the weekend? Yeah, and you know what? I had a conversation with Ryan Johnson uh, just yesterday about this, and and the thing that they want to see from the organization, at least, is to see these players not have to worry so much about a system and and look more like a showcase here, right? Like, you, you want to see your top-end guys try something. You want to see Linus Carlson, you know, attempt to go around defenders that he's going to be maybe playing against in the AHL this year. Or, you know, watch Jet Wu step up and make big hits. Like, you want to see these players use this as not really a tournament, but, like, seriously more of a showcase. Like, I know it's called the Young Stars Tournament, but to me, the way I'm looking at it is uh, I want to see how these players showcase what they're good at and really just play the game of hockey to their strengths and and kind of look at it that way. Like, uh, it's not really about who wins and loses here. I really think it's about how these guys kind of show the organization what they're all about, what their strengths are, and, you know, maybe um, you don't have to worry so much about them kind of looking at your weaknesses here. I really think the players just want to go out and show their strengths throughout. Well, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it and just hearing you describe that and, you know, the the kind of idea coming from Ryan Johnson as well. The two names that pop to mind for me, and you know, they would be at a, a, the top of a lot of people's list anyways, but it's, you know, Linus Carlson, as you mentioned, and Danilo Klimovich as well, right? If the goal is to go say, hey, go show us your tools, show us that, that talent and ability you have, those are the two guys I think who should be able to do it. You know, a little older with pro experience uh, for both of them. And as we all know with Klimovich, you know, he can make high right, high right, highlight real plays happen. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think those those two players you mentioned there are like I'd love to see Carlson and Klinovich both be on the power play. Um, and this is an opportunity where like I'd love to see Carlson and Klinovich play power play in the AHL this coming season. Uh, I'm pretty confident we're going to see Carlson there and we'll likely see Klinovich at some point. But because of the, I guess, the group that they're sending to this young stars, this presents an opportunity for Daniil Klimovich to really be able to get more shots off on the power play, have that extra space where, you know, he showcases he looks so good in practice and development, like camp and drills and, and everything. Like his shot, just you see him go bar down and you look at it like when he gets a really good shot off, you're like, damn, like there's there's an NHL shot there already in his game, it feels like. Uh, it's just, it was a little bit of a struggle last year in Abbotsford, him not being so consistent on the release of his shot, not maybe having enough space uh, at five on five to be able to kind of gather himself before he gets that shot off. And we, we should be able to see that at this Young Stars tournament. I mean, he, there's not going to be, you know, grade A defenders kind of stopping <laughs> these players at this tournament here. So you want to see Klimovich have a little bit of fun with this. And I think it's a really good start for him to... You know, he, he stayed in Vancouver, right, this whole offseason here. He's really committed to wanting to make an impact on that AHL team this year as a 19-year-old. Uh, and he is kind of the young star for the Vancouver Canucks at this tournament. One of the, the rare teenagers, actually, <laughs> that you see on this roster. But, I mean, you want to see Klimovich just kind of develop a little bit of confidence. And I, and I think he's done that in the offseason here, whether it be skating with, you know, the other Russians like uh, Kizmenko, Podkols, and Mikheyev. Like, they, he's been out there with these guys every day, getting a lot of work in with Ian Clark as well. And, you know, I, I think of, like, hearing Ian Clark yell at him, like, the difference from what he's doing in drills, even with the goaltenders of like, if you like, I've, I've heard Ian Clark say this, like, if you want to be an NHL, you got to do this right. You got to do this right. Like he even screams at him. Like I remember him asking like AHL or NHL and having like Klimovich scream back that he wants to be NHL. And like, you know, having someone like Ian Clark push you at that point, I think has been good for him in the off season. Now you kind of want to see this be it, kind of like I mentioned earlier, this is kind of the showcase now for Klimovich. Like, what's he going to look like next year? Is he going to be a guy who scores, you know, 8, 9, 10 goals next season? Or can we actually start to look at him, you know, maybe dropping 20 in the AHL? And that would be a huge step in development for Klimovich. But uh, to see him stay around all summer, work with the organization throughout development camp, throughout these summer skates, like, uh, you know, you, you want to see him kind of receive the fruits of that labor at this tournament here and be a guy who is put into a top six role, is playing power play, is doing a lot uh, and just being able to showcase his strengths against this uh, lower level of competition that he's going to be going up against. The the Klimovich situation is really fascinating because obviously it's so rare for someone as young as him to play in the AHL. And I think whenever you see a player challenged like that at that age, it's a kind of high risk, high reward situation, right? The risk is their confidence falls, they're overwhelmed and, and you derail their development. But I think the reward is really high too, Faber. Like, as you said, if, if he's able to withstand it and still take those steps, well, all of a sudden you've got a 19 year old who's performing at the AHL level and that's extremely valuable. That's a really exciting prospect. So I find the Klimovich situation fascinating because as much as it, you know, people can say, ah, oh, well, maybe he should have gone to the, the queue or back to Belarus or whatever. This situation also has a huge amount of upside if it goes the right way. Oh, big time. And I mean, like, uh, I look at him, like, making the jump from the Belarusian second league now to the AHL. That is a massive huge. jump in hockey. Point me a player that's made a bigger jump than that last season. Like, honestly, you probably couldn't spot a guy that, you know, came out of, like, the, the Russian junior leagues and jumped into the NHL. It's almost like a similar jump in, in play for that. This is There's probably no player in the world of hockey that made a significant jump of competition as high as Klimovich did from that uh, Belarusian second league to the AHL. So it, it is a huge... 
um, a huge step in the right direction that he was able to just fit into that league. And and I look at another guy who's going to be at this Young Stars tournament and Brad Lambert. Like, he might be an 18-year-old playing in the AHL this season, depending on how things break with uh, what Winnipeg wants to do with him. But even if that is the case, he's coming from the Finnish Liga. Like, I, I think a top-five league in the world to make that jump into the AHL, another top five league in the world. Like it's, it's not massive, right? Like there is going to be a lot of challenges for him doing that and playing in North America. If that's what Lambert goes, but for Klimovich, yeah, I think it, it was a positive season though. You know, a lot of people saw what he was able to do at the world juniors and see him at their, or sorry, the, the U18 yeah. tournament and see him put up that ridiculous amount of goals and, and score against Canada and look well, like he looked good. Right. But uh, I think just him being able to get through a season where he plays 60-plus games in the AHL, I mean, it is it is impressive. And, and though there's a lot of things that need to be worked out in his game, um, with a new coach coming in here and Jeremy Colleton, like there, there's going to be a lot of changes uh, for that AHL team and how they develop, like having the Sedins out there being able to teach him that it's not just about his shot, it's about actually being a well-rounded hockey player. Like they're... I think this is going to be a big year for Klimovich. I don't know if it's going to show up on the score sheet so much. Like, I do think he'll he'll probably put up more points than he did last year. But to me, that's not really the thing you want to look at this year. Because after seeing his rookie season, there's there's a lot of things that need to be addressed in the defensive zone. I think this year is going to be a big year for that, for Klimovich to develop. In conversation with Chris Faber of Canucks Army here, Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. And, you know, you mentioned it with the changes in Abbotsford. And just looking at it from a roster perspective, Faber, you know, there's it feels like there's going to be more kind of interesting young players that that have maybe you know that at least Canucks fans can look at and say oh I hope that they're going to be contributing down the road for the NHL team at some point right and I'm thinking you know Niels Almond obviously Klimovich is still there Linus Carlson Arshdeep Baines with all those young players and maybe a bit more focus on on development do you still see Abbotsford being a competitive team in the AHL this year? I think they'll be competitive because they do have a few of those returning veterans who are going to make massive impacts. And I mean, Justin Dowling wasn't there all last year. He's going to be an excellent AHL player because he's kind of a fringe player for the NHL. Uh, you're going to have Phil DiGiuseppe out there, Sheldon Dry. So you're still getting like a top line that's going to likely be, you know, one of the best scoring lines in the AHL again. I, I do worry a little bit about the defense core. There's been a lot of changeover. Uh, you lost your two best offensive defensemen and Jack Rathbone and Madison Bowie, assuming that Rathbone makes that jump to the NHL. So uh, there is going to be some questions on the defense core for me, absolutely. But they... They brought in, you know, Kalyanuk and Willanen, some veteran guys, like 26, 27-year-olds who have had some NHL games, played well in the AHL. So, like, that's a little bit of depth that they're added there. And and I do think that there is going to be a big focus on watching these young players have success. And you bring up Linus Carlson, you bring up Niels Almond, like, these guys should play pretty well in the AHL. They've, they've showed well in the SHL play at the World Championships. Uh, I know that even, you know, to, to bring up my conversation with Ryan Johnson the other day, uh, him, him speaking about Niels Almond, like they really liked what he did at the World Championships and they want to use him as a center in Abbotsford. Um, so, so to hear that and to hear that he wants to see Almond be a guy who's kind of added to this young group of players that they want to see develop in the AHL, I think there's a lot more being invested to Almond that maybe we believed in uh, about two months ago when we were at development camp talking about, uh, you know, if he doesn't make the NHL team, he might be going back to Sweden. Like, that is not the case uh, from what Ryan Johnson told me the other day. They want to see him develop in the AHL, and they love the the size and speed and the ability to play center and just the way that he thinks the game. So uh, I expect him to be a guy who's playing in at least the top nine, playing center, potentially even, like, used as the second-line center behind someone like uh, like Sheldon Drys, who should be the leading guy there uh, in Abbotsford. But you can see a second line that features like Niels Almond, uh, likely Linus Carlson, and then you can kind of pencil in your next best scorer there and have a little bit of like a battle at camp for that spot. You want to see
see Archie Baines show well. Uh, you want to see a couple of these other guys like Tristan Nielsen, who's looked really good throughout the summer. Like there's there's going to be uh, at least a very exciting team in Abbotsford. Uh, I'm just. I think the roster might be a little bit more... There's a few more questions, I guess, than what we would have seen if they would have just kind of run everything back right. from last season because you knew what those guys were going to do at the AHL. Uh, you knew that they had Justin Bailey and then all these players that were kind of veteran AHL players who are excellent AHL players. It's a little bit of a shift, but to me it's more exciting because you're going younger, you're going with guys that haven't really proven themselves at the AHL, and the hope is that these guys don't just stick in the AHL. The hope is that they just use the AHL to develop and you can get some NHL games down the road. I uh, wanted to ask this question from uh, Dan from Vancouver. Uh, he wants to know if uh, w- what your expectations are for Arshdeep Baines. And I think a lot of people are excited to watch Baines, obviously with the local connection, but also because of his skill set, you know, free agent out of the CHL, figures to be in the mix in Abbotsford. What are you expecting to see from Baines? Yeah, I, I'm expecting to be a really good AHL player next season. Like, I, I I think coming out of the WHL, scoring as many points as he did, leading the league in goals and or leading the league in points is is something that, uh, you know, you don't just push to the side. Like, that's an impressive season for a guy, though he's an overage player playing in the WHL, like, he still was the leader in points. That's something that I definitely take into account. I think he, he's going to be a player who is going to have success at the AHL level. I don't think I'm too worried about that. And it's not like he's, you know, he's he, the good thing is he's not one of these CHL players that's like, you know, five foot seven and just happens to be that much faster than all the players in junior. And that's why he puts up points and goals. Like, he is a solid all-around hockey player who thinks the game really well. Uh, and speaking to his coach, Brent Sutter, out there, um, and GM out there, I guess now, I, just the way that he talks about how Baines thinks the game is at such an elite level, and that's kind of the, you know, he would have seen, I think even the conversation I had with him in the summer was, you know, Sutter mentioned that, you know, he knew Baines was going to be a pro like years ago, right? Just the way that he thinks the game, the way that he works, he he really worked hard to get to being the WHL leader in points. And and this is a kid who I think is going to do the exact same thing when he gets to the AHL. Like I, I look at some of the players that they brought in last year uh, to Abbotsford and like Tristan Nielsen and, and, you know, Nielsen looked really good at times uh, in the AHL last season, he even had a hat trick at one point, but like, he wasn't leading the WHL in goals or right. assists or points. Like he was just a he was a good player on the Vancouver Giants team. Now you're getting the best guy out of the WHL for putting up points last year. Um, I, I do think he's going to have a pretty big impact, and I wouldn't be shocked to see him even start the season as a top six guy. Uh, depending on how it kind of shakes down, like you might see um, a top six be a little bit more full of veterans. I've mentioned that first line in Abbotsford. Justin Dowling probably fits in on a second line. So Baines maybe starts on the third or fourth line, but I, I do expect him to be in the starting lineup for, for Abbotsford when the season starts for sure. Faber, I want to ask you about some of the Canucks prospects who are going to be playing over in Europe this year as well. As I said you know, earlier in the interview, I know you're always locked in following what those guys are doing. And, you know, obviously – Number one on the list that fans are going to be paying attention to is this year's first round pick, uh, Jonathan Lekaramaki. What kind of season do you think he's going to be in a position to have playing in Sweden this year? Well, he's you know playing in that second division over there, the Elsvenskan. He's he's going to get a ton of time on the power play. That's going to be somewhere where, just to me, there's no question in my mind that this is going to be a guy who's going to be able to play on an NHL power play one day. Like this, there's too much skill already in this kid who has such a good shot, has such good puck handling abilities, has good vision. Like, he, he does so many things so well, and it just feels like all of the strengths in his game uh, are going to be successful on the power play. I think the question is, uh, and you you saw a little bit of this at the World Juniors, is like, what is he going to look like at 5-on-5? Five five? Like, you can't just be a guy who scores on the power play and does extremely well there. 
you need to be something at five on five as well. Otherwise, you know, you, you don't really want him to kind of fall into that spot of being, you know, like uh, we mentioned that we always talk about the Sam Gagne fourth line power play specialist. Like you don't really want LeCarrie Mackey's <laughs> um, ceiling to be that. You hope that the floor is not even that. I mean, this is a kid who has a lot of speed in his game. He, he does a lot of things really well in the offensive zone. Uh, I just think that it's going to take a little bit of honestly, probably just coaching, like coaching at, a high level showing him what he needs to do at five on five, how he needs to be better. Um, I, I really hope that the Canucks spend a lot of time sending Mikhail Samuelson out there to talk to him about what it takes to really be an NHL player and not just relying on how good his skill set is to get there. I mean, it's going to take more than that. I, I don't think that it's going to be a problem once he gets here to be a power play guy in the NHL, but to be an impact NHL player it's going to take more things at five on five from him. And even throughout the preseason here, we've seen him put up points and it just feels like it's always coming on the power play. Um, so the situation that he's going to be put in there with your gardens is going to be to start the season. It looks like he's kind of going to be in a third line role from what we've seen in preseason so far. But like I kind of been saying this whole time about this answer here, he he's a first power play guy. He's going to be that for Jer gardens. He's going to be relied upon to put up a ton of points. And I, I do think there's a lot that's going to come to his game when he also does get a little bit bigger and stronger. I mean, I've, you know, chatting with this kid down at uh, development camp, like he is absolutely a kid. He's, he's got a lot of room to grow. Uh, and that's going to be something that we want to see over the next two years here when he's playing in Sweden. Who else are you keeping your eye on in terms of European prospects for the Canucks this year? Who, who are you really excited to see what they can do? Yeah, I, I like the uh, two defensemen that are going to be playing uh, over in Sweden as well. You got Jonathan Myrenberg, right shot guy who looked uh, looked excellent at development camp. I mean, he looked a lot bigger and stronger than he was uh, even playing in the SHL last year. Um, I think he was like second in scoring for defensemen throughout the preseason for his Alsvenskan team. Uh, expecting him to play top four minutes and play a lot uh, in that Alsvenskan league. So it's going to be nice when uh, him and and uh, and Lecare Mackey end up matching up in some of those games as well. So. Uh, to get two birds stoned at once, which would be great for the uh, for covering prospects, uh, as well as uh, Elias Pettersson, the the left shot defenseman who's playing SHL minutes right now, looking like a, a third pairing guy uh, for his SHL team at this point. And that's excellent for a kid who was just drafted this summer. Um, and then I guess kind of sticking with Sweden, I I do my Tuesday wrap up of the prospects, and we just have like a section a heading that's called like Sweden gets its own heading, uh, <laughs> and it just gets that like every single week. Uh, the final guy would be Lucas Forsell, who just turned nineteen. Uh, expect him to put up a lot more points this year, and he's got a two-year deal in the SHL now with uh, Fargestad. So, like, he's he's a player who's going to be given a lot more minutes now because they locked him in for two years. Uh, and I expect to see him get power play time and, and really put up a lot more points than he did even last season uh, as a guy who started the year as a 17-year-old. So, uh, pretty exciting things with uh, with those Swedish players. But aside from the Swedish guys. Uh, yeah, it's not been a great start for the Liga uh, defensemen. I know the, the Canucks have two uh, defensemen playing in Liga right now with Victor Parison and Yanni Yermo. Uh, I think Yanni Yermo's got a little bit of a, a short-term uh, health problem here that will get him back uh, in the lineup hopefully in the next couple of weeks. But uh, Victor Parison was a healthy scratch in his first Finnish game. So, um, yeah, aside from the Swedish guys, uh, there's not a ton yeah. to really dive into so much. But there there is some excitement coming out of Sweden as... Um, Canucks fans can probably expect seeing the way the Canucks have drafted over the last few years and uh, going heavy into the uh, Trey Kroner. The Swedish connection remains strong. I feel like, I mean, there's a chance that um, the the World Junior team for Sweden is, is going to be like the Canucks farm system, basically, <laughs> just, just you know, rolled I, out there. Yeah, I, I think I've like looked at this like 
it could end up being five players. That's amazing. I think that this this World Juniors, and I don't think it'll be five. I think we are going to look at maybe uh, two or three uh, being there. But I mean, yeah, like Sweden's going to be a lot of fun to watch this year. The World Juniors for uh, Canucks fans. I think Forsell's going to make a strong case. I think Pedersen's going to make a strong case. Myrenberg's going to make a real good push as well. But uh, I think it's going to come down to LeCarrie Mackey being the lock for sure. But yeah, you, you could end up seeing three, four guys, maybe even five if everything breaks the right way uh, for these Canucks prospects at uh, the World Juniors for Sweden. Faber, uh, always appreciate the time, man. Enjoy Penticton. Don't go too nuts, though. Try to try to keep it in check, buddy. Well, I know. I get uh, I got a text from Andy this morning. Or he's saying, hey, can you do 7.30 tomorrow? I said, oh, geez. No. Drink some water. Drink some <laughs> water tonight, I guess. <laughs> yeah, mix in a water, as our guy Irv says. Thanks, Faber. Yeah, you betcha. Have a good one, Jamie. That is Chris Faber from Canucks Army. Uh, he'll be going up to uh, to Penticton to cover the Young Stars Tournament. And it sounds like you might hear him on the morning show tomorrow with Halford and Bruff as well. So getting your fill of Chris Faber. It's Sportsnet Today here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, final few minutes of the segment here. Uh, Vince Verhey from Football Outsiders is going to join me at 10 o'clock. Talk a little bit about the Thursday night matchup. Look ahead to week two in the NFL. Maybe I'll even... Get his thoughts on the uh, the Nathaniel Hackett decision to kick that field goal at the end of the Monday nighter as well. But before we get to that, uh, we started the show by talking about who's going to be that surprise player for the Vancouver Canucks this year. The unexpected player that steps up and really helps push them into a playoff position if they end up there at the end of the year. Lots of good thoughts coming in. This one unsigned, and this is a guy on my list as well is Dakota Joshua. And Dakota Joshua almost falls into this position by default because I just I don't think people really were that familiar with his game when he signed with the Canucks. And you've heard uh, the Canucks management be very excited about what he can bring. And you just look at it on that fourth line, and there's going to be a kind of an interesting competition. We can talk about Niels Hoaglander in a bit here as well. But on that fourth line, if it is, you know, Curtis Lazar, Jason Dickinson, Dakota Joshua, something like that. What kind of element can that bring to the Canucks? And with Dakota Joshua, look, he's going to figure as a as a bottom six player. So the expectations for offense, that sort of production, you have to keep them in check. But if he can be that kind of, you know, if, if they can find a fourth line and maybe Joshua is part of it alongside Curtis Lazar, that replicates just a little bit of what they got from their fourth line last season with Mott, Highmore, and Lamico, where they really earn the trust of the coaching staff. They play in a way that kind of emphasizes the identity the team wants to have with that, the energy, the forechecking ability. That's the most important thing for the fourth line for Dakota Joshua to be a part of. If you do that, you know, the production will come to a certain extent, but that's what I'm really curious to see is can they build a fourth line around Curtis Lazar that the coaching staff genuinely trusts and can do more than just go out there and eat minutes. They had that last year, and I think it was a big part of why they were able to go on the run in the second half. If they're going to do it again this year, then yeah, I think Dakota Joshua is going to have to step up and be a part of that mix. I think he's a good, good submission for potential surprise contributor. This one, and this is an interesting name to come up. A very polarizing name. My surprise contrib- contribution candidate for the Canucks this year is Tyler Myers. He was better defensively under Bruce, and I could see him having a major bounce back offensively over 10 goals. And this one also, Tyler Myers, can he be the same player he was last year without OEL on his pairing? 
And I think that's the big question with Tyler Myers. Again, it's all about context. It's all about usage. What kind of role is he asked to play? Is he playing on that shutdown role with Ty- with OEL again? Well, if that's the case, then really all you care about is how well is he holding up in his own end? Yeah, the offensive production is nice, but it would be icing on the cake at that point. If he's not with OEL, well, what's his role going to be? Is he going to play on a, on a third pairing with somebody like Jack Rathbone? Is he going to play with Travis Dermott and be asked to handle those tough minutes? Tyler Myers, and I certainly have my issues with his game. He played really well last year. But he is going to be, you know, if he can even just sustain what he did last year or find another level or thrive in whatever role he's given, it's so crucial to a team like the Canucks that, as we all know, you know, is still looking to find the right formula on the blue line going into this season. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Hit me up with your thoughts. We'll get back into this uh, this conversation a little bit later. Who do you think are going to be the surprise players for the Vancouver Canucks this season? But up next from Football Outsiders, Vince Verhey joins the show to talk all things NFL. It's Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Sportsnet Today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Sportsnet Today, here on Sportsnet 650. I am Jamie Dodd. Thank you for listening. We're going to chat a little NFL with Vincent Verhe of Football Outsiders momentarily here. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Uh, we were just talking to Chris Faber on the other side or earlier uh, in the show about the Penticton Young Stars Tournament. I neglected to mention that you will be able to hear all of the Canucks games at the Penticton Young Star Tournament right here on Sportsnet 650. Our guy, Brendan Batchelor will be up in Penticton. I believe the one tomorrow is going to be on our online stream because we're playing the uh, Canadians playoff game at the same time. But after that, certainly uh, on Saturday or Sunday, excuse me, I think is the next one. It'll be over the air on the radio with Brendan Batchelor calling play-by-play in Penticton. So look forward to that here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Keep your thoughts coming in. 650, 650 is, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots going on today. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk to Vince here uh, momentarily, but fantastic, fantastic Thursday night football matchup on the schedule tonight between Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs and Justin Herbert uh, and the L.A. Chargers. Divisional matchup, two of the best quarterbacks in the game. Both teams that won their game are 1-0 now. We all saw what Patrick Mahomes did, throwing five touchdowns for Kansas City, making that statement uh, that, yeah, they're not going to miss Tyreek Hill all that much. We'll get into that and a lot more. Uh, It is Sportsnet today here on Sportsnet 650. Now very pleased to be joined uh, by Vincent Verhey, who covers the NFL for football outsiders vincent thanks very much for doing this how are you doing great how's your morning going so far it's going really well i was just talking about how excited i am for uh, for a great thursday night matchup here in week two in the nfl tonight i, I want to dive into that but you know i'm still not quite over what we saw on monday night football <laughs> yet vince so i do want to talk a little bit about that and you know we've had a couple days now to kind of digest and think about it and, and hear even a little bit of an explanation have you been able to wrap your head around at all Nathaniel Hackett's decision to kick that field goal at the end of the game. 
Well, um, hmm. <laughs> I guess not, because it still makes <laughs> it, it uh, just on the surface. It's it was so ridiculous with you know what, what he thought. And there have been, I'm sure you've all heard these numbers by now before. But there were two 64 yard field goals made in the history of the NFL. There were 20 plus fourth and five conversions in the NFL last year alone. So one is clearly, plainly, obviously on paper more common than the other, and then you don't need. A, a, a so-called football expert like myself to tell you that it's obvious. So uh, I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, maybe he only maybe he only watches his guy kick in Denver. Doesn't realize they're a mile <laughs> high and the ball travels farther. I, I have no idea. It makes no sense. And then he he, he gave his I, I don't know apologies the right word, but he sort of he said give him the chance he'd do it again. But he also said he'd do that because the kick was missed. So he didn't really acknowledge that his process process was so poor. So. I don't know. It, it certainly was not a good debut for a rookie coach. No, it certainly wasn't. And as you said, the the explanation after the fact, the day after, didn't make a whole lot of sense uh, either. So not not a great start for Nathaniel Hackett in his NFL head coaching career. And, and the other thing I wanted to ask you about that game is obviously the focus was on Russell Wilson's return uh, to Seattle, and then the focus was on the decision at the end of the game. You know, the Seahawks pick up the win, it, it, but what did we actually learn about the Seahawks that that will you know have um, have have meaning throughout the rest of the season in that game? Well, I think we learned that Geno Smith is good enough to exploit a defense that makes mistakes, but he's not good enough to beat a defense that is playing well because nobody's talking about this. But most of his yards, like something like one-third of his yards came on those two touchdowns to the tight ends who were both wide open when Denver just screwed up. And when Denver went into halftime, got their act together, and came out in the second half, Seattle's offense, and, and especially Geno, were, were shut down. He had 27 yards after halftime. And it's not as if they were ahead, but they were never ahead by more than one score. They never had the ball in the last four minutes of the game. So they needed to move the ball as best they could and score as best they could, and they couldn't do anything. So we'll see what happens this week against San Francisco, which on paper looks like a better defense than what Denver should be. The Thursday night matchup tonight, as I said, fantastic between Kansas City and the Chargers. Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, both won in week one. And the Chiefs and Mahomes, their offense looked fantastic. And I I got the sense that maybe they were trying to put a bit of a statement out there, right? Hey, we lost Tyreek Hill, but it's not going to matter. We're still the Kansas City Chiefs. What, What was the biggest takeaway for you from that week one performance from Patrick Mahomes? I watched that game as long as it was on the local TV. Eventually, they switched to something else after after a, you know the blowout got out of hand. And it didn't matter what the score was. I refused to turn the game off because I was afraid I would miss Patrick Mahomes doing something awesome. Um, he looked like he was honestly at some points toying with the Cardinals, letting them <laughs> get just enough pressure that they thought they might get a sack and they need to slip away and you know throw a running the wrong way sidearm across his body touchdown pass just because he wanted to. Like he like he was bored throwing standard routes. I wanted to make it more challenging for himself. Uh, it was a, a, a tremendous game. We've got an article up on Football Outsiders uh, by Derek Klassen looking at Travis Kelsey, how the Chiefs used him, moved him around, and used him as their, you know, the primary focus of their offense, but also as a decoy and how uh, the attraction that the Cardinals paid to him opened opportunities for his teammates downfield. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing that's going to happen against the Chargers. Um, we'll see if the Chargers blitz Mahomes as much as uh, Arizona did. I don't think they will, because I don't think Brandon Staley is that dumb. Um, <laughs> but Patrick Mahomes eats blitzes alive, and he has as long as he's been a starter. They, as long as he's been a starter, Kansas City is ranked first or second in the league against blitzes every year by our numbers. So um, blitz at your own peril, 
And like I say, I don't think Staley's going to do that very much. Yeah, I mean, the performance from Mahomes and the Chiefs was exceptional. I think the caveats about, as you said, the strategy defensively from Arizona is very appropriate. This is, you know, if there was this one golden way to slow down Patrick Mahomes, teams would do it all the time. But do the Chargers have kind of the personnel and, as you said, the coaching to at least come up with some different ideas to try to slow down the Chiefs' attack? Well, uh, they have the personnel for sure, because if you're not blitzing, that means you need to get pressure, particularly the defensive line. And through one game, the Chargers' defensive line right now looks awesome. Uh, I think Khalil Mack had three sacks against the Raiders. I think uh, uh, Joey Bosa added a sack of a half, if I have that right. So they were harassing him all day. And I'm, I'm not saying they're going to have the same success against Kansas City, but that, that's what you need to do. If, if, you, if you, you, know, you can't blitz Patrick, so the only way to defeat him is to get pressure with your, your, your tackles, especially your edge rushers. And, and the Chargers' edge rushers right now look as good as any pair in the league. Is that, is that the matchup to watch, maybe the, those edge rushers against the Kansas City offensive line tonight and see how the, the O-line can hold up for the Chiefs? Probably. Um, we, you usually think about you know, quarterback versus quarterback, and Justin Herbert had a uh, big game against the Raiders in a win, too. And, and there'll be some fireworks, don't get me wrong. <laughs> there'll be a lot of fireworks in this game. But as far as as the match of the wins, if, if the Chargers are going to win, they're going to need to lean on on uh, Mac and Bosa to uh, to to give them a chance. Yeah, as you mentioned, Justin Herbert with a really impressive performance as well. You know, not not the same type of of gaudy statistics as Mahomes had. I mean, who did? But some of the throws he made were just so impressive. You know, I know it can be difficult to kind of assign uh, numerical rankings to all of these great quarterbacks, but maybe it's it's better phrased as kind of what tier is he in, but where do you have Justin Herbert in that hierarchy of quarterbacks around the league right now, Vince? Well, I'm looking right now at uh, our Football Outsiders data, and uh, you know we do, we do a play-by-play analysis, look at you know not, not, not just raw totals or even just raw averages, but just how, how consistently successful the guy is. I'm looking at the, the top three quarterbacks in the league through week one. It's only one game, but it's through week one. I see uh, Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs. I see Justin Herbert of the LA Chargers, one and two. Uh, third place, by the way, Russell Wilson of the Denver Broncos. So that AFC West is looking really, really good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Herbert is, is funny because he, he's a guy who it seems like his highlights make the national media and the, the, and the highlight shows, but his bad games and his struggles don't get there as often. This is a team that lost to Houston last year. <laughs> this is a team that had to beat, you know, the – had the playoffs at their hand if they beat the Raiders last year in effectively a playoff game in, in week 18 and couldn't get it done. So he's still, there's still a, a, a growing process he might be going through and maybe we're watching him uh, go through it right now. And maybe we'll know a lot more here in uh, this time tomorrow morning, uh, just how far he has come. Um, but you know, he's, he's still young. It's only his third year and the, um, Still, still some unfulfilled potential in this guy. What do you want to see from Justin Herbert, but also the Chargers as a whole this year to, as you said, kind of put some of those unexpected uh, potholes that they ran into last season behind them and, and maybe grow into being legit contenders in the AFC? I think, well, like, like you say, it's, it's le- uh, less about what happens tonight. I mean, you know, if they have a close loss tonight, that's not the end of the world. Yeah. Though, because you know, Kansas, City, Kansas City is going to beat a lot of teams. It's what they do against the bad teams in the schedule. You know, the week three they play Jacksonville, who I think is better than a lot of people realize, but still not. There's not Kansas City. In fact, I'm, I'm looking here. The next three games: Jacksonville, Houston, and Cleveland. That really, if they're going to be a good team, that should be probably three wins. Um, if, if, if they're, you know, if, if they're any worse than four and one uh, by the time they play Denver in week six, you know, it's, it's going to be time to ask some questions. And 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 it's fair. And the AFC is stacked. 
So, you know, you don't have a lot of room. There's a lot of room for error. So the, the biggest thing is, can he take care of business? Can they, I should say, can the charter take care of business against the bad teams? Uh, looking ahead to Sunday, we're in conversation with uh, with Vincent Verhey from Football Outsiders here on Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. Looking ahead to Sunday's game, one I'm really interested in is the NFC West matchup between the Seahawks and the 49ers. And, you know, kind of unexpectedly, Seattle finds themselves alone in first place after week one in that division with the big 1-0 record. How much should we take away from Trey Lance's performance in week one against Chicago? Because I know the field conditions and the rain and all of that played into it. Is it a kind of thing where you say, write it off, don't pay attention to it? Or was there more we could learn about Trey Lance and the San Francisco offense in that one? I see this as someone who identifies as a Trey Lance agnostic, if not an outright Trey Lance skeptic. <laughs> don't worry about that game. It was especially by the end, which is when they were trying to rally after they fell behind. After the 49ers fell behind is when the rain got its worst. And they were effectively playing water polo out there. They were not playing football. And uh, so I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't put a, a ton of uh, uh, faith in those results. I, I, I listed our top quarterbacks just now. Our bottom quarterbacks are, are uh, excuse me, but by uh, the least successful, least consistent quarterbacks of week one were Trey Lance and Justin Fields, who were playing in that right. game. So, um, I, like I said, I certainly wouldn't put a lot of faith into it. Now, like I say, I am a silly Trey Lance agnostic. So I'm still waiting to be shown. You know, people forget how young this guy is. He's still younger than Malik Willis, who's sitting on the bench getting seasoning in Tennessee right now as a rookie. Uh, he's a very, very young player that the 49ers have made this big investment in. So, um, you know, we'll see if he can mature rapidly. But he, he, he hasn't yet. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean he won't but he hasn't yet. Uh, elsewhere around the NFL, just thinking about some of the, the interesting results, or at least the ones that piqued my interest in week one, how worried should the Patriots be about how this season is going to go right now? I think very. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes you get a, a big loss or a, a loss or a bad showing, and it's because you, 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 uh, you can kind of, it comes out of nowhere. If, if your best players have a bad day, um, and you think, well, that's our best players having a bad day. They'll have a better day next week. We'll be fine. For the Chiefs, this loss, you kind of see it. You could, or excuse me, for the Chiefs, for the Patriots, you could see this coming because they lost Josh McDaniels, who left to go coach the Raiders. They never bothered replacing him. They just brought back, so Bill Belichick brought back his worst former assistants and put them in charge, only there doesn't seem to be anyone actually in charge. Uh, it was finally revealed this, this just before the game, and Matt Patricia is the one calling the plays because his run in Detroit went so well. And um, everyone thought they looked terrible in the training camp. Everyone thought they looked terrible in the preseason. Played an actual game now. They look pretty terrible. <laughs> this this is, could be a problem. There, there's the holes in the roster. There's holes in the strategy. They're missing the guy who was running the show and making it go last year. That This is, you know, I... I this is not something that's going to get solved overnight and probably won't be solved by the end of December. This is going to be a problem all year long. Yeah, I'm, I'm sensing a theme there. You know, look terrible and look terrible in preseason and then look terrible in week one as well. And yeah. you, just before we let you go, I'll, I'll throw you the same question about another team that uh, struggled in week one, but I think have much higher expectations for the rest of their year. How worried should the Green Bay Packers be right now? Uh, less. Uh, it wasn't good. Uh, they lost, you know, a bad loss to Minnesota. It wasn't quite as bad as it looks. They did have a, uh, a fourth, fourth down play down to the goal line. They screwed off on it. They had a touchdown on that play. It's a whole different game. Um, and, and they had a, a, 
Oh gosh, the, the rookie whose name I'm forgetting now. He was wide open for a long touchdown and dropped the ball. Yeah, so, Romeo, Romeo Dubes, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they had opportunities and 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 couldn't make the most of it, and, and the score looked worse than the game actually was. Um, and it's also you know last year in week one they got they, they got crushed by uh, it was Arizona who crushed them last year or ten. What are those two? Um, so the, you know they, they, they're a team that kind of takes a while to come around. You know, I think Aaron Rodgers' most famous quote is when he told the Packers fans to relax and spelled it out and made sure that they did and by the end of that year they were back in the playoffs again so um you know not a good thing that to lose like that but it's not the end of the world they still have the two time well two time in a row MVP I think they've got four MVPs total so I that's what gives them the leg up on most of the competition uh Vince really appreciate the time enjoy the Thursday night football matchup tonight hopefully it's a good one thanks folks you too that is Vincent Verhey covers the NFL for Football Outsiders, getting us set for, yeah, the premier matchup of the week, certainly. Patrick Mahomes versus Justin Herbert, Chiefs versus Chargers in a divisional matchup tonight. Uh, some other interesting and compelling matchups on the NFL schedule for Sunday, though, as well. Uh, speaking of NFL, a little bit later in the show, coming up at 1030, fantastic interview on the morning show today with K.J. Wright, former Seahawks linebacker, a fantastic player for a long time for the Seattle Seahawks. Of course, ended his career last season with Las Vegas. K.J. Wright was on the morning show with Halford and Bruff today. Really, really interesting interview. Thoughts on Russell Wilson, on the Seahawks, on everything that happened uh, with those great Seahawks teams over the last decade or so. So we'll play that some of that uh, back at 1030 because I think you're going to want to hear it. If you missed it, or even if you did, even if you did uh, uh, miss it or hear it, uh, then uh, you might want to hear it again. By the way, people are saying it wasn't Dubes uh, who dropped that pass. You're correct. It was Christian Watson. Excuse me. Uh, I was thinking of the other rookie uh, on the uh, on the on the Packers wide receiving core. So, yes, sorry. Sorry, Romeo Dubes. It was Christian Watson who dropped that pass. Thank you for people texting in. Uh, 650, 650 is Sportsnet today here on Sportsnet 650. I mentioned this off the top of the show, but I do want to just spend a couple minutes here uh, talking about Roger Federer. As I, uh, I'm sure you heard, he announced today he's going to retire after next week's Labor Cup in London. And look, I mean, this comes right after we saw the end of Serena Williams' career at the U.S. Open, and that felt like the end of an era. And I mean, now it really, really feels like the end of an era in tennis. And obviously you still have Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic doing their thing. We'll see how much longer their careers continue. But Federer was the first one of that trio to establish himself as a great, as an all-time great, right? To go on the run that he did. And his retirement very, very much feels like it's the end of the big three, officially the end of the big three era uh, in men's tennis. I mean, he hasn't competed since Wimbledon in 2021, so it's not not a huge surprise. But, you know, still, I know there will be a lot of people who are upset that they're not going to get more chances to watch Roger Federer compete. I, I was never a, a hardcore fan of one of the big three. I know that debate can get very, very heated. Some people are died in the wool Roger Federer guys. Other people are no, 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 only Nadal. I've always been able to just kind of sit back and appreciate them all. I'm not going to sit here and tell you which one of them has had the best career, which one deserves the title of the GOAT. The thing I'll always remember about Federer is just how easy he made it look, right? The grace that he had. That's the best word ultimately to describe how he played tennis. Just so in control, so smooth all the time. And th this is also always, I think, one of the ultimate compliments you can play, pay an athlete is that they make it look easy. Because if you know anything about high-level athletes, and not just high-level athletes, but people who are able to 
dominate their sport, perform at the, the highest level of their sport for as long as Roger Federer did. And it's a very select group of people. But you know nothing about it is easy. Nothing about the work they put in, the preparation, all of it, the mental strain, the physical strain, nothing about that is easy. Roger Federer made it look easy. He might be the ultimate example for me of an athlete who made it look easy. When he was in prime, in his prime at the top of his game, it just looked so simple. It looked like he was, you know, they used to say about uh, Andre Pirlo, right, in soccer. It looked like he could be playing with a glass of red wine in his hand. That's how calm he was. Roger Federer had a little bit of that as well. I also think it's interesting because, you know, we, we've been in this era or we're kind of in, in this era of athletes and longevity great seeing how far they can push it, right? How long can they keep playing at the top of their game? But now we're also starting to see these retirements come. And I know there are going to be a lot of people very, not upset is necessarily the right word because, you know, he's going out on his terms and it's a chance to celebrate his career. But there were a lot of people who loved watching Roger Federer play tennis. And it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to watch one of the greats, one of your favorites, decide to hang them up. I, w- I was wondering, whose retirement... Maybe it's impending. Maybe it's still a few years down the road. Whose retirement do you think is going to hit you hard, right? It's going to be a tough moment. Oh, man. I don't want, I don't get to watch them play anymore. I was thinking about this, and there's a few that come to mind for me. And I think the big one, and this, when you're just talking about, you know, end of an era, all of that, I, I think it's Tiger Woods. Now, obviously, he is in a very specific phase of his career at this point, and we already had the incredible send-off. Uh, of, of him getting the big win at um, at Augusta again after coming back and getting a big win uh, on the Tour Championship that year as well. So he's had his late career moments. We'll see if he can author any more. But, you know, when the official retirement does come from Tiger Woods, I think that's going to be, you know, a really tough one for a lot of people to process because he has been synonymous with watching golf for so long. It has been Tiger Woods has defined, more than defined, an era of golf for almost 25 years now. For 25 years, it was 1997 when he broke through the Masters. I know he's not a regular feature of the tour or anything like that at this point, but he is still the number one guy when you're talking about golf. I think that's up there as one that's, it's going to be tough to take. It's going to be a moment when it happens. Jamie, I'm not Go ahead. I'm not uh, a LeBron fan necessarily, a massive LeBron guy, but when he leaves the game of basketball, it will be extremely hard. Yeah. Like he's in the conversation. I I'll always pick Jordan, but you know, he deserves to be in that conversation and when you have a possible goat leaving the game, it'll be tough when LeBron leaves uh, the NBA. I LeBron is on my list too. Now I am you know, and I don't know, people might get the wrong idea when I say I'm a LeBron guy, but I've always been a fan. I've always really enjoyed watching LeBron James play basketball. He might be the guy, just in pure hours spent, right? The guy I have enjoyed watching play basketball more than any other player because he's been around for so long, good for so long, in so many big games over the course of the year. And he makes it look pretty easy too yeah, sometimes. At, at his peak, yeah, he made it look extremely, extremely easy. Uh, another one that's come in here from Rager, Sidney Crosby, which I think is a good one. And with Sidney Crosby, you know, there will always be the thought for me at least that, and look, we could be still a few years away. I'm not, I'm not hanging him up for Sidney Crosby just yet here. We, we could still uh, get a few more great moments and great years from Sidney Crosby. But for Crosby, it's a, it's a double thing for me, right? Why, why it's going to be an emotional moment when he hangs him up is, one, obviously, the golden goal. That was such a phenomenal moment 
top of the list for so many Canadian sports fans, myself included. And he's, he's the guy. He is that moment. So that's going to be really difficult. And also for me with Crosby, it's, man, I wish he had stayed healthy in that one stretch of his career. I wish he had been on the ice consistently. And look, he's still authored an absolutely phenomenal career. He has nothing <laughs> to hang his head about. One of the true all-time greats. But you also just kind of think, similar to Mario Lemieux, right? It's not as extreme with Crosby, but with Lemieux, look, I mean, he's no doubt, you know, worst, what, second or third best player of all time. But you also look at the gap uh, in his playing days, and you think, man, what could have been if he was able to stay on the ice. This is a good one from Jay. Uh, Messi and Ronaldo. Yeah, and you talk again about just era-defining athletes in their sports. That's a fantastic one. It's going to feel kind of empty almost without those guys. And I, and I don't know if there are, you know, I know you can talk about, you know, killing Mbappe, Erling Holland, but there haven't necessarily been, and this is similar to tennis. We're seeing it now with Carlos Alcaraz, but there hasn't been those next guys to step up and kind of claim I'm one of the goats, right? I am going to be the people that take up the torch in terms of world soccer. So yeah, it's going to be a very strange sensation uh, when Messi and Ronaldo do eventually uh, uh, retire. And another one who says uh, when Ovechkin and Crosby retire, and again, guys who have kind of together uh, defined an era in the NHL. Nate from Comox says, when Crosby retires, we deserve a national holiday. I love it. I love that one. That's a great idea. Uh, from Nate from Comox. Going to take a quick break and get uh, back into the... I'll I'll play KJ Wright uh, back for you. He was on with Halford and Bruff this morning. Just one more that I wanted to mention, Christine Sinclair. And that is a very, very good one. And again, that's the one where you can kind of see... You you can see the end coming. Who knows when it will be? And she's still playing well for the Canadian team and in her pro career and all of that. But you know it's on the horizon. And the great thing about Christine Sinclair, I think, is that we have finally given her the recognition she deserves for what she's done in that sport. So we have a chance to celebrate her right now. They won the gold medal. That was incredible. She set the international goal scoring record, all of that. I'm really happy that she's getting that acknowledgement and that celebration. But yeah, in terms of athletes, it's when it's, it's, it's going to hit hard when they hang them up. Christine Sinclair on my list for sure. If you have any more thoughts, Athletes who you're dreading their retirement, who you know it's going to be emotional, maybe a little dust in your eye when it happens, let me know. 650-650. It's Sportsnet today. And as I said, KJ Wright, former Seahawks linebacker, fantastic, insightful interview with Halford and Bruff on this morning. You hear from that, uh, get into a little bit more of the Canucks, uh, more talk about retirement, maybe a little Whitecaps chatter as well in the final segment of the show. I'm Jamie Dodd. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Listening to Sportsnet today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back, Sportsnet today here on Sportsnet 650. Final segment of the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Jamie Dodd. Lots of great texts in the 650 650 Dunbar Lumber text box today. Always appreciate that. Keep them coming. Anything you want to get off your mind, let me know. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Fantastic interview. Fantastic interview with KJ Wright. Longtime Seattle Seahawks linebacker. 
uh, on the morning show today with Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650. I'll play that in just a second. I mean, KJ Wright, you know, he might have been, there were so many stars on that defense, right? And, you know, obviously starting with the Legion of Boom, Bennett and Averill on the line, Bobby Wagner as the linebacker. I think sometimes KJ Wright, he fell down that list. He was probably the most underrated guy on that defense, but he was an absolute rock. And even when a lot of those other guys left, right, and it was him and Wagner holding down the linebacker spots, he still played at an extremely high level for the Seattle Seahawks for a long, long time. Only made one pro ball over his career. And again, I think that's just because, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to send the whole Seahawks defense to the pro ball? But I think he could have been in the mix uh, a lot more than that, given what he did. Uh, Again, was on with uh, with Halford and Bruff this morning, talking Seahawks, talking about his career, looking back at the Russell Wilson experience in Seattle, all of that. He started off by talking about being in attendance at Monday night's game and what that atmosphere was like. It was just so much energy, and all the stars came out. I saw, you know, Marshawn was there, Sherm, Doug, Cliff Averill, like literally all the fellas was there to see that primetime football game. And so super cool atmosphere for me to go up there and raise a 12-man flag to get the, you know, the atmosphere pumping, everybody excited. They scored on that first drive, and so that place was rocking, and it definitely felt like the good old days. As a former Seahawk, but also a former teammate of Russell Wilson, what were you feeling after the win? So I was happy. My heart was beating so fast after uh, during that drive. I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I, I love Russell, but I did not want, want them to win the game. So my heart was beating fast. I was like, please miss his field goal. And, um, but it was weird to see him on the other side and hear the fans boo him and um, see him wearing that Broncos jersey. But um, tough loss for Russ, but I know him very well. He's going to be successful out there in Denver. So just the first game, he's going to be all right. What was Russell like as a, as a teammate? How would you describe him as a teammate? I would say Russell was a teammate that was extremely, extremely locked in and focused. He was a guy that was strictly about his business, the way he carried himself in the locker room. He was always there early, leaving late. And uh, as, you, as he started growing older, you saw he started to, you know, let his hair down a little bit, joke on the plane, vibe more with the fellas. And so he really came in really serious and locked in. Uh, pros, pro, and I, I love to do, and I enjoyed our time there when we played in Seattle. Were you surprised at all by the fan reaction to him? I was not, no. <laughs> I wasn't. Just, um, I believe that word got out that he wanted to leave Seattle, and this fan base is going to forever stay loyal to the Seattle Seahawks. They don't care who the player is. And so they were upset. They were upset, and they definitely let him know, like, hey, we was with you for this 10 years you were here. We rocked you. We supported you. How dare you think about leaving us, Russell? So we're going to boo you. And so um, he definitely felt that. He definitely heard that. I definitely believe that had an impact on the game. As a guy who had a front row seat to um, all the drama of the Seattle Seahawks <laughs> over, over the last decade, uh, I, I'm going to ask you, do you think the Seattle Seahawks uh, would make a good 30 for 30 documentary? Oh, my God. It would be a top seller. It's <laughs> There's so much stuff that went on in that locker room and, you know, during the Super Bowl and just drama, drama, drama. So it was um, a group of alpha males. It was, it was a group of guys that were super passionate. And, um, yeah, man, we were great in our run, but it was some stuff that came with it for us to, um, you know, make it on Sundays. And so it will definitely make a 30 for 30. We will have a 30 for 30. And uh, what I'm looking forward to, I think that we should just have our own thing, a group of just uh, the core guys sit down 
and have a live conversation and reflect on those years that we had. In oh, Seattle. that'd be amazing. That that could actually be the 30 for 30. That mm-hmm. could be the narrative that kind of, kind <laughs> exactly. of drives it. Exactly. Uh, um, the, the Super Bowl win was obviously uh, amazing, but the Super Bowl loss is the one that is still talked about. With all the egos and big personalities involved from those on the defense to Russell Wilson to Pete Carroll, the head coach, when there was that loss, was it inevitable that the Seahawks would kind of have trouble sticking together as a group? Oh, absolutely. The um, the trust was lost. The connection and that bond was broken during Super Bowl Forty Nine. And so we knew right then and there, like, this, this, we can't recover from this. As good, as talented as we are, there's, there's no recovering from this loss. I, I could have handled losing 40 to zero versus losing like that. And so um, definitely hard, hard, hard lesson we had to learn. And um, that, that feeling that we had, it lasted for about four years in that building. So definitely hard to overcome. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's it, the type of loss, right? Just how painful it was. It wasn't if like when you went in and blew out Denver. Um, I I don't think Denver had the same sort of sting or pain in large part because they oh, no. they had their Super Bowl. But no. you know, um, I'm sure you've seen this, and I've talked about it on the show earlier as well. Is that it started with Brady Henderson's ESPN piece, and it's being reiterated a few times that the loss has now become this thing where it's alleged that Russell Wilson called an audible on that final play at the goal line. <laughs> You're already laughing. This is great. So you've heard this, obviously, yes. correct? <laughs> no, this, this is my first time, and, and, and I'm not buying that one, not one bit. I, I didn't even hear that uh, Brady said that. Yeah, it was in Brady's piece, and then I think uh, I think Lynch was on a, a podcast where he kind of alluded to it, but it's one of those things where I don't know if this is a great urban legend that's just kind of spun out of control or whether there's some validity to it. I love a good conspiracy theory, so I'm willing to go there. So you've never heard this before at all? No, I've never heard that. Okay. That is true. I'm fighting somebody when, when I see them. <laughs> that, that better not be true. Okay. No, no, no. That's, um, I believe, to my knowledge, the play call came from the play caller to throw the ball, and that's it, period. I right. thought it was just a really terrible decision in play call. If an audible was made, no, 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 I, I would have saw that. You, you could see an audible being made at the huddle. And so um, that better not be true. Okay, well, on that note, then I want to get into the dynamic between Russell Wilson and the coach that was at the Super Bowl. Of course, Pete Carroll, because it was interesting. In the aftermath of that win on Monday night, Pete was talking, uh, I think it was with 710 AM in Seattle, and talking about how much the uh, alumni and the guys that were there, like uh, Richard Sherman, Marshall Lynch, you mentioned him, Doug Baldwin and everyone, how much it meant to them. And then they asked why, and Pete responded, eh, you figure it out. So and I, I know you, you heard this and you addressed it already. Can you let our listeners know what you thought about what Pete had to say in the aftermath? Coach Carroll is funny. I, I'm, first of all, I'm so surprised that he even spoke about that. But you could tell that this was extremely, extremely personal. And what I believe that he was trying to allude to is that these guys, maybe a few guys, have a certain feeling towards, you know, Russ, and they really want to stick that game to him. That's all I, I could think of is that these guys have a certain feeling towards and they really wanted this game bad to show that you are not about to come into our field to this stadium that we built and get a win on us. And so – Thoroughly surprised that Coach Carroll said that, but he said it, and I believe that's what he was alluding to. 
But it, and it's, it, I think the thing here is like we were talking about dynamics in the room and that some guys get along with everyone. I, I know you mentioned that you and Cliff Avril, like your personalities where you could get along with everybody. And then there's other guys that aren't just mm-hmm. wired that way, period. And it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just how their personalities yeah, are. Yeah. So what might apply to some doesn't apply to others because, I mean, it's hard not to look right. at social media after that win and see Doug Baldwin tweeting out a gif or you know richard sherman doing the same thing so they obviously have a different personality and a different approach and a different reaction and i'm sure as a guy that gets along with everyone you have to kind of take that all in and have a chuckle if nothing else but at the same time know that yeah yeah, i got along with some guys other guys on my team didn't yeah and um those two guys in particular are very honest blunt um a little too blunt at times and they're just really, really honest. And I believe that with those two guys, they come from a really good place in their heart. And they just had a certain vision or a certain standard that they wanted to hold guys to. And in their building, they felt like that wasn't being applied to everyone. And so they let it be known. They let it be known. Um, I love those guys. They could be a little petty at times. <laughs> but um, that's just the truth of it. We all are in the locker room together. We all love and respect each other. But to say everyone's friends is a whole different story. Is having a big ego good for a professional athlete or bad for a professional athlete? I, tr- I truly believe that. I, I look at myself and, oh, this is a deep question. That's a really deep That's question. A very, it's a very deep question. We, we've, we've discussed this a few <laughs> times because yeah. it's often like what builds a great athlete is an ego, but yeah. it's also what can tear apart a team too many egos. Yeah, man, and you need you need that ego. It's, you got to have a fine balance. I'm, I'm gonna say that. Okay. You got to have a fine balance. You got to have that ego where you step on the field like I'm the baddest man on this football field. Can't nobody mess with me. But you also have to have that side to you to where you could just suppress yourself, take a step back, shut the hell up, and just move and migrate within the team. If, if that makes sense. And so um, I've seen a lot of egos ruin relationships, ruin teams. Um, Ruined marriages. I've seen it all. And so um, when it comes to football, you got to have that fine balance because too much can destroy everything. Are you going to be a coach? You seem like a coach. That's some good advice right there. I I do not plan on ever being a coach. Maybe (laughs) high school, but to be a professional NFL coach, um, I can't do it. Please don't let me do it. I tell my wife, honey, don't let me do it. <laughs> I don't want, I will be, I will be great at it. I will be a multi Super Bowl champion as a coach, but I got three kids, man, that I want to see grow and be at all their games. So I, I can't go into that, um, into coaching. Safe to say you're enjoying retirement. I think I read somewhere that, you know, you didn't really enjoy, or it was not say you didn't enjoy your season with the Raiders. It was just a tough situation personally being yeah. away from your family, and then y- you basically said, well, I'm either going to play for the Seahawks or I'm going to play for nobody. They were obviously, they are obviously going in a, a, a youth mode, um, so yeah. you decided to hang them up. So what's it been like? It's been good. I, I felt like I talked to the fellas. It's like, man, I was like, what's the other side like? Some guys like, it's cool. Some guys like, you got to get a therapist because you're going to have an identity crisis. I'm like, oh, Lord, like. But right now, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm just, I have to do my media stuff. I wake up every morning, work out, spend time with my wife and kids. My daughter's playing volleyball. So I have, I have plenty to do. So I'm loving it so far. 
We're speaking to Seattle Seahawks linebacking legend KJ Wright here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, KJ, you mentioned you talked to some of the other guys about what they've been doing in retirement. How often do you guys that were on those great defenses in the Seahawks uh, either get together or hang out or keep in touch? Is it like the front seven and then the Legion of Boom do their own thing? Do you Are you guys on like a WhatsApp group together? Like, how, does it, how, does, how often do you keep in touch with all these I'll give guys? you a million dollars for that WhatsApp group transcript. <laughs> I, well, here's the thing, because they they be golfing all the time, so I got to start golfing to be able to hang with the fellas. And so <laughs> right. we're literally all within a, like a ten mile radius, right? Cliff, uh, Jermaine, they all all these guys stay close. So we see each other all the time. Um, I know Curse and Cam, they golf all the time. Um, Cliff, we we talk often, and so all the fellas see each other. And so I'm so thankful that I'm staying in Seattle, and my boys are with me too, because uh, man, we essentially grew up together. We became men together had families together, and so um, all the boys are here. What made you such a good tackler? Not that I'm complaining about the win. I was happy about the Seahawks' win, but there were a fair number of missed tackles by the Seahawks on Monday night. <laughs> what made me a good tackler is um, I was just a really good football player, and I just believe that our coach, we had a coach by the name of Rocky Seto, and he really taught me the art of tackling. It's um, If you watch a lot of my plays, near foot, Near shoulder is the art for tackling. Hmm. A lot of these guys, they, they try to get their head across. A lot of coaches teaching bad football. Near foot, near shoulder, track the guy, understand your speed, understand the angles, and just be aggressive in your in your approaches. So that really changed my career. That was one year I missed like two tackles maybe and made 130. Just, just accredited to that coaching and that style of play that I had. You know, that's that's an interesting answer because I know uh, basketball coaches get asked all the time about rebounding, whether it's like skill or will, because a lot of people say like that there's a technique to it for sure. You got to box out and everything. But at the same time, you just got to want the ball more than the other guy. That's rebounding with when it comes to yeah. tackling. Is it more of a technique thing like you were suggesting there? Or is it really just like I'm going to get this guy to the ground and I'm going to want that more than him wanting to stay on his feet? Yeah, absolutely. You have to have that mentality. This is a grown man that's trying to feed his family. He's trying to make me miss or he's trying to run me over. I'm the same thing. I'm a grown man. I have a family I want to feed. Man versus man, ego versus ego. <laughs> Who's about to win this battle? And so you definitely have, that, have to have that mentality when you step onto the football field because it's the best of the best, the best in the world that's on this football field. And so you have to prove each and every play that I'm the baddest man on this football field. That was uh, Seattle Seahawks, a f- great linebacker for so many years, KJ Wright, on earlier today on Sportsnet 650, talking to Halford and Bruff, and just a lot of great insight. I mean, as you heard into his his own career and, and what made him such a good tackler, such a good linebacker towards the end there, about the pro athlete mentality in general, and then obviously also about his time with the Seattle Seahawks why certain players obviously feel one way about Russell Wilson, the loss in the Super Bowl, all, all of Super Bowl, all of that. Great insight from somebody who who's lived through it, who knows what those conversations, what those moments were like from an inside perspective. And a couple of things that really stood out to me. I mean, one was, you know, him saying that he he hadn't heard the idea that Russell Wilson called an audible uh, to to throw a ball uh, on the goal line rather than hand it off to Marshall Lynch. That's a, a theory that's been out there unconfirmed. KJ Wright said he hadn't heard that, which makes me think that it's not true because if it was true, I, I would assume all the key guys 
on the team would know about it at this point. Uh, but I did love him saying, if that is true, I'm going to fight somebody. That's how upset it would make him if it had turned out to be true. And the other thing that stood out to me was him saying, the hangover of that loss was so traumatic, right, to lose in that way in the Super Bowl, despite the fact that they'd already won the Super Bowl the year before. It was so bad, so hard to get over. He said the hangover lasted four years for the Seattle Seahawks from that moment. That's how long it took for them to work through that loss. Really great interview uh, from KJ Wright. Shout out to Halford and Bruff uh, for getting him on and for doing a good job with that one on the morning show today. Final few minutes of the show, Sportsnet today here on Sportsnet 650. And I did want to talk about, uh, just before we get out of here, uh, I wanted to talk about the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, Yeah, not a big talking point always here in the city, but they won last night. They beat LA 3-0. Really big second half after a bit of a shaky first half. They get the win. And this just feels like classic Whitecaps to me, right? Because this that win, it comes on the heel of three really disappointing losses in a row. Now they can win and say, hey, hey, we're still technically in the playoffs, right? We got that win against another team we're trying to beat out for the final spot in the playoffs. We're still alive. That's true. They are technically still alive. They're six points out with only three games remaining. They have to jump a bunch of teams too. Technically in it, but it is a major, major long shot. And it just seems to always be, always with the Whitecaps, too little, too late, right? Again, great that you got the 3-0 win, that you can maybe extend the relevancy of your season a little bit more. But where was this a few weeks ago when you dropped those three games in a row? Where was it at the beginning of the season when you once again stumbled out of the gate and dug yourself this massive hole that you had to climb out? And it just always seems like, As I said, it's too little, too late for the Vancouver Whitecaps. And to me, this just sets it up perfectly. Hey, they won 3-0 last night. Good performance. That's great. It just feels like they're setting themselves up to, you know, finish on this season on a winning streak, come up just short of the playoffs again because they're such a long shot at this point. And then you can turn around and say, hey, but look at all that momentum we built late in the season. That was a pretty exciting way to end the year. We came up just short. Oh, but we were so close. And all we have to do is carry that momentum forward. And man, it's going to be really exciting next year. But at a certain point, you need more than just last-ditch late-season efforts to make the playoffs. There has to be more than that to hang your hat on as a franchise. And it's just been so long, so long since we've had that with the Whitecaps. It's just this constant cycle of one step forward, two steps back, it seems like. Or two steps forward, two steps back. There's moments of promise when they brought in Vanny Sartini, right? When they gave him the job and he leads them on a run. And you think, all right, they found something here. What are they going to do at the start of this season? Well, it doesn't work out. Now they're trying to replicate that same thing. But there just has to be some consistency at certain point. Late season momentum, who cares if it never ends up carrying over to the next season? Who cares if it never amounts to anything? If it always just comes up short? Again, it's great that they got the win last night. They entertained fans. That's awesome. 3-0. Nice result. But once again, it feels like the Whitecaps are going to come up just short of where they need to be at the end of the season. And again, just where was this performance when the games really meant something? I'm ultimately tired of this routine from the Vancouver Whitecaps. Don't save it for the last couple months of the season. Get off to a good start. That's what it's going to take to get people really meaningfully invested in this team again. 
That's what the standard has to be. Right now, it just still feels like we're in this cycle over and over and over again uh, with the Vancouver Whitecaps. A little bit of breaking news just coming out. Uh, you just heard from KJ Wright, uh, of the C- formerly of the Seattle Seahawks. Breaking news about the Seahawks. Safety Jamal Adams will have, this is from Ian Rappaport of the NFL Network, just tweeting a few minutes ago. Uh, Safety Jamal Adams will have season-ending surgery to repair his torn quad tendon suffered against the Broncos. His 2022 season is over as he is headed to IR. So there you go. We knew it did not look great for Jamal Adams. We didn't have official confirmation. Now we do. Ian Rappaport reporting that Jamal Adams will miss the remainder of the season. He's going to have season-ending surgery uh, to repair his torn quad tendon uh, that he got in that Monday night win against the Broncos. And, man, what a fascinating game that turned out to be. It was circled on everyone's calendars for all sorts of reasons, and then the Russell Wilson drama kind of almost overshadowed that the, the Seahawks got a win. The Nathaniel Hackett decision took up so much of the oxygen. Now you have one of the key players, and obviously it's been a very frustrating, contentious, controversial tenure with the Seahawks for Jamal Adams in a lot of ways, but still a guy they were going to rely on to perform if they do want to be competitive this year. Now they're going to have to find another solution. Uh, you, you thought safety was going to be maybe the strength of their defense with Jamal Adams and Quandre Diggs. Jamal Adams now out for the season in Seattle. That's going to do it for us today. Shout out to everyone who texted in. Always really appreciate it. Uh, the Jays are playing at noon today, so you'll hear that here on Sportsnet 650. And again, if you missed it earlier, you will be able to hear all of the games at the Penticton Young Stars Tournament uh, on Sportsnet 650, or at least on our online stream. I think for tomorrow, it's going to be on the online stream. Uh, after that, should be over the air. Keep it here. It is the home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650.